On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Ryan Hurd about the senses of scripture, particularly in the medieval and reformed tradition. So we cover all sorts of topics like how prevalent is the medieval interpretive paradigm? Did reformed thinkers use it? Do evangelicals use it? Why is there commonly a reticence to use methods like these among reformed evangelicals? What are the literal and spiritual senses of scripture? How do the literal and spiritual senses compare to each other? Who are the exemplar interpreters of scripture that utilize these sort of approaches? How might understanding the different senses of scripture benefit pastors and laymen as careful readers of holy scripture? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And one way we've tried to stimulate sort of, sort of serious thinking is by encouraging or reminding you of certain sort of like dispositions of what it looks like to be a, a healthy Christian who's curious about uh, theological things and wants to learn more. And so we've tried to call that like creating an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So really what that ends up boiling down to is being kind and open to reason like James tells us to be, uh, the wisdom that comes from above, but also being very rigorous in what we think and, and engaging all the best sources and understanding what everybody has to say. Uh, and also doing it just with the basic knowledge of like, hey, I've got this centered place where I confess, say, the ecumenical creeds. And then going from there, knowing that you've got a home base that you can say, I've, I can have differences with somebody who's in a different tradition. And yet we still affirm these basic core things. And that can really develop those friendships. So we try to be serious about thinking, but also be serious about friendships and relationships with others. So that's one thing we've tried to do with the podcast. Now, I, I'm super excited to introduce you all to Ryan Hurd. So I don't know how many of you guys know Ryan. I imagine a lot of you do. Ryan is one of the, the brightest thinkers in our tradition that I, I can imagine uh, doing all sorts of fantastic work. Uh, I've had the pleasure of being able to sit in on lectures from him and other things in the past, and I just always walk away uh, challenged and realizing that there is so much more to learn. So I'm excited to talk to him today a little bit about Holy Scripture and how the Christian tradition has thought about interpreting it and understanding it. So this is going to be a lot of fun. So Ryan, before we get started, maybe just give me a little context, like what is it that you like to research, think about, and you know, how is it that you became interested in becoming a theologian, maybe? Thanks, Jordan. Uh, I'm really thrilled to be here. I've actually really wanted to do this for quite some time. So thank you for having me me on your show. Uh, Yeah, my name is Ryan. I uh, do theology. I'm a Thomist, uh, professor of theology at the Davenant Institute, where I'm privileged to teach Primarily, their Doctrine of God courses. I do Doctrine of Holy Scripture and then do a lot of reading courses, particularly in the medievals and early moderns, uh, Reformed Orthodox and kind of uh, their contemporary Roman Catholic neo-scholastic. So I do a lot of Thomist reading, Bonaventura, guys like that. And uh, as far as how I got interested in theology, uh, Honestly, it's been something of a journey, as perhaps is the case for a lot of people. 
but my passions are primarily talking about who God is and bringing the rich resources, especially the scholastic tradition, to bear on those questions of God, uh, but particularly in order to be able to speak about God very simply and plainly and powerfully to people. One thing that is really important to my heart and the heart of really any scholastic, especially Thomas tradition, which is where I come from, uh, is the sheer technicality of scholasticism, which if you start to get into it, it gets quite hardcore very, very fast. It is rather shocking. Uh, but it, it is merely steered to just intensify the very, very basic things that we say about God all the time and to be able to say them slightly better, slightly more sharply, more clearly, to have firmer understanding of the goodness and the love of God and these sorts of things. And uh, I like to tell my students that uh, really the only stuff that we do in Thomism is nothing else beyond what grandma does, uh, who has studied Holy Scripture all of her life and just thought about who God is in Christ. And we don't really do anything different in the technicalities of theology as a professional discipline, as an academic discipline, or within a certain tradition of theology, like Thomas theology or scholasticism. We're not really doing much different, even though it certainly feels different and it takes an awful lot of sweat to do. When you punch through at the very end of those journeys or you start to make progress, uh, you come out and you say, eh, well, grandma was right. Uh, you know, God is very good and he's very kind and these very basic things. So those are my passions and what really drive me, I would say, as a theologian. Also what brought me to reflect more and more on the doctrine of the, Holy, uh, of the sense of Holy Scripture in the tradition. Excellent. That's, that's, that's awesome. So as you mentioned, and as I guess I mentioned, the senses of Holy Scripture, I want to focus on. One thing I would be curious to start as a baseline when we think about those sort of senses, oftentimes, I think probably for those who are more up to date on like just new books that come out, those sort of things. Yeah. Probably have been introduced to terminology, things like the quadriga or however you say it. I'm probably mm -hmm. terribly mispronouncing it. But the, just the senses where you have a literal sense of scripture, you have a spiritual sense of scripture, you have these other senses and finding out like, hey, maybe this is something I'm already doing intuitively. I don't really mm -hmm. know about it. Yeah. Um, so just give me, when we want to think about that terminology, particularly in the medieval era, what is that broadly? Um, how prevalent is this interpretive paradigm? I mean, do we find that it's prior to the medieval period, that it's after the medieval period, people are still using this, or they just, maybe they don't like the terminology, but they're still doing it? Yeah, well, getting uh, your head around the sense of Holy Scripture, particularly as it's inflected throughout the tradition, is a complex task. What people uh, come away with very quickly is a recognition of that complex story and just how much equivocation is found throughout the entirety of the tradition, whether you're looking at the, the fathers, the medievals, uh, and then in the early moderns where it just becomes an entirely different ball game. And really today, what most quote unquote normal persons are gonna be familiar with as they approach this topic is gonna to be an early modern rendering more or less. Those of us who are in the Protestant or Reformed tradition, you know, we grew up 
hearing Westminster Confession. There's one sense in Holy Scripture. We're familiar with typology, these types of things. All of those were uh, attempts by the early moderns, by the reformers, to rehash some older doctrines. And there were quite a number of things that got lost in the shuffle. There was a large uh, degree of difference, but it's often covering the same type of of territory. Um, What's really advantageous about the medievals, which is where the quadriga becomes prevalent and common in the theological discourse of the day, is that the quadriga or the fourfold sense of Holy Scripture was intended to be a technical doctrine which adequately reduced all the senses in Holy Scripture. And that's really important. It was intended to adequately reduce or be the adequate reduction of all the senses in Holy Scripture that you would actually and concretely find. And the design of, of doing theology in that kind of style, which is what medievals, what, for example, Thomas Aquinas was doing with all elements of theology is that as you gaze across the entire tradition with all its insanity among the fathers, all the differences we find in the early moderns as they are heirs, you know, intention with the medievals, intention with the fathers, accepting, of course, all the, all this very complex story. When you handle things adequately, nothing is ever getting lost in the shuffle. Everything is actually being covered and the pieces of the pie are being cut up properly. And there's particularly the concern to cut reality at its joints. This is a a very Aristotelian concern. So if you can conceive of the fourfold sense uh, of Holy Scripture as a medieval or even perhaps a more Aristotelian attempt to just do theology adequately in order to cover all the bases that you actually do need to cover in the concrete, real interpretation of Holy Scripture. So in a similar way to how, for example, Aristotle looks out into the created universe and divides it adequately into 10 commonplaces, 10 notions, which no matter what area or what part of the created universe you're finding yourself in, one of those 10 categories is going to be uh, that to which that element of reality reduces at the very, very bottom. Now, it often is a very long reduction, yes, but we reduce these things so that we can do philosophy well and clearly and cut reality as joints and, and those types of things. In a similar way, the fourfold sense of Holy Scripture was devised to be the entirety of Holy Scripture boiled down to its most basic salt crystals. And what happened after many, many centuries of the fathers trying to do this and then getting it a little bit more boiled down, boiled down, we obviously see very common elements early on, things like the allegorical versus the literal sense, these kind of very basic distinctions. When the medievals come on the scene, things have terminated, we've gotten to the bottom of all the matters, and then the doctrine is like cast in crystal form. And that's what someone like Thomas himself is doing, and he actually plays a really important role in that history. However, with that said, there is a trade-off when you're dealing at that most reduced kind of level. And that is that it is often 
difficult to see or feel how this superstructure, so to say, as you turn it back around over the text as a lens through which the text can be read, it feels very foreign. It feels like there's this interweaning uh, system that's being, you know, scriptures being twisted into. We've got eisegesis concerns, these types of, of troubles. Um, there's lots of those types of trade-offs. One historically unfortunate trade-off has been a misunderstanding encased in the quadriga or four, fourfold sense itself, which is perhaps the most important thing to understand uh, as you approach this doctrine at this very basic reduced form. And that is that the four senses, which are usually here called literal, allegorical, anagogical, and moral, these fourfold senses actually are falling into two different genera or genuses entirely. Now, this has been a point of confusion for quite seriously four or 500 years. The Reformed did not understand this very often, not infrequently. This was because their Roman Catholic counterparts also did not understand this as they were reading the medievals and, you know, things were getting lost in the shuffle. But the point is to, to note very clearly that these four senses are actually, so to say, species under two distinct categories, which are entirely different things, we might say. And those are what we call the literal sense and the spiritual sense. The literal sense, of course, corresponds or has fallen within its borders, the literal sense of the quadriga. And the spiritual sense encloses the three senses, allegorical, anagogical, and moral. And that basic move solves already so much confusion, so much equivocation that is found in the reception of this medieval toolkit. We're talking about two different genuses, the literal sense, which is taken from signification in words or letters, and the spiritual sense, which is its counterpart, which is taken from the sense signification in realities, not words. So allegory here, as a species or a subgenre perhaps of the spiritual sense, is a kind of signification by way of realities altogether independent of words or letters. People are concerned about allegorization or allegory or these types of things are often thinking of issues to do with the literal sense. We're talking about an entirely different thing. Allegory in the tradition is said in many modes. As we speak of the quadriga, we are speaking of it as a, a kind or species rather of the spiritual sense. Um, and that's very important. Um, those two genuses of the senses found in Holy Scripture literal and spiritual, come about because the fathers and the medievals particularly believed that God, as he reveals himself and these supernatural truths uh, to human persons, has done so in a fundamentally two different ways. One is revelation through history or through realities, 
And then the other is a, his, is a revelation made by way of letters or words. As these two kinds of revelation become enclosed in the sacred text, we begin to speak, perhaps confusingly, of two sense, or better said, a twofold sense found in Holy Scripture. It's important to note that's coming from a grounded signification found in realities that have now been enclosed into sacred writings, which themselves have a kind of signification. So easy to get your wires crossed, but that's kind of the basic, the basic notion of the fathers are coming at this. God has spoken not only in the words, both uh, oral and written, prophets and apostles, but also in the things or the realities, the Red Sea crossing, you know, Reformed people today think of this often as typology, where the great deeds and doings of God, particularly in the special history of Israel, terminating in the unique history, the particular history of the man Christ, um, is a vehicle or instrument of God's revelation parallel to and outside of or independent of the sacred text that then becomes enclosed in the sacred text by virtue of being the thing that the letters of Holy Scripture themselves are speaking about. And that's kind of where we go from there. Question I have at this point, the way you've sort of bucketed them where literal and spiritual, does the way the medievals understand them, does that map on to like how earlier figures like Augustine are using the different senses? It does, but there is tension there. And it's a different kind of tension than later folks. Think again of the notion of adequacy here, which is so fundamental to understand the way medievals or the way Thomas does theology. If you look at the wild landscape of the fathers and also the descriptions of the fathers as to what they're doing, so they're called the allegorical sense, the mystical sense, the mystagogical sense, the anagogical sense, the typical sense, the figurative sense. You know, allegory in the fathers stands for like five, six, seven different things. In a certain sense, there's tension with the medieval quadriga or fourfold sense, but that's only in, uh, that's only because it's a less reduced form, and that equivocation has not altogether been worked out of the system. It's like boiling salt water lower and lower and lower down. Everything that's in the water, all of the salt gets to the bottom, and you can, if you know what you're doing, intelligently trace back how origin's allegorical sense makes makes its way down to these four subspecies here, again, crossing two genuses, very important. Um, Someone like Augustine will call allegory sometimes a certain kind of literal sense, sometimes a certain kind of spiritual sense. And again, those are two radically different things. The reformers in the early moderns look at this and they don't quite understand what's going on. They see a lot of abuses particularly of allegorical sense in the tradition. Again, allegory being said in many modes. And they don't recognize that sometimes those quote-unquote abuses are not abuses to the letter of Holy Scripture, 
because we're not actually talking about the signification pertaining to the letter at all. We're talking about what the reality means, what this event in sacred history means, what the Paschal Lamb means and all this. And we're developing a very complex theory about this, which perhaps we don't like, perhaps we do. But the point is we're not doing havoc to the letter. We're not stuffing a bunch of equivocal senses internal to the letter where we have a whole bunch of arrows contained therein sticking a whole bunch of different ways making for equivocation and uncertainty, which is especially what the Reformed are concerned about because the Roman Catholic counterparts are often using the spiritual sense in order to prop up certain doctrines proper to the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, so they're concerned about uh, those types of abuses. But uh, yeah, so that tension is very, very complicated. It is important to recognize that the tensions you find in the early modern period in relation to the medievals are not the same kinds of tensions as you find with the fathers in relation to the medievals. One is we're being reduced. The other is doing an entirely different thing. The, uh, the early moderns are, are, are doing very much an entirely different thing. Hmm. That, that's really helpful. So as we think about the literal and the spiritual senses, at least as far as it goes in medieval scholastic sort of era, how would they themselves say these two things compare to each other? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's important again to, to get clear at the level of genuses, the two genuses, the literal and spiritual sense, the spiritual, which is sometimes called the allegorical. Again, you can see what, what you can see why there's a headache. <laughs> um, so the literal sense, just two definitions here to get us started. The literal sense is that sense taken from the signification in words or letters. Uh, literal here is not how we use the word literal today. Rather, it's quite literally, letteral, the lettered sense, the wordy sense. Yeah, It's the sense taken from signification in letters. By the way, that definition is meant to be extremely technical and exact. That is the definition that eventually the medievals come up with. And uh, there's lots of attempts at definition, which are more or less in tension with the reality being defined. And that if you, if you stick to that exact definition as phrased, uh, it will be helpful to you, I promise you. Uh, the spiritual sense is that sense taken from signification in realities. Those realities themselves being signified by the letters in Holy Scripture. So it's like a telescoping situation here. You have the letter... It points to a certain reality, and we talk about that reality as the sense of that letter. In the case of certain realities in Holy Scripture, the reality itself has another arrow to even one more reality beyond, which it itself signifies. And that second reality is the spiritual sense, etc. Those are all stacked into the text. How do they relate to one another? Well, Thomas Aquinas is perhaps most famous for talking about how the literal sense founds the spiritual. The literal sense founds the spiritual. And what he meant by that was rather complex, but one important 
thing to recognize is not that the letter so much controls or places uh, guardrails around the types of you know allegorical romps that we could do. It's not what we're wanting to do with the literal and spiritual sense. That's very much leaning into allegorization, which people are rightly uncomfortable with and concerned about. And medievals readily speak against its abuse because it is an abuse. No, we don't think of the letter as like providing the, the guardrails or like tracing out the arena where you can just play around in there. Rather, the letter serves as the foundation for truth which causes the mind to rest and have certainty about matters of faith. One thing that's very important about the spiritual sense that the entire tradition agrees upon, at least up to you know the early moderns, again, the early moderns do a different thing, um, is that never, never, never do we derive doctrine, do we prove doctrine in any way, do we even suggest doctrine as probable, from the spiritual sense. This is taken from Holy Dionysius, where he says, symbolic theology is not argumentative. It has zero bearing on the truth, positive or negative. It cannot incline the intellect towards a yes or no part of contradiction. We do not use the spiritual sense in theology. It is used for various purposes. We might say illustration. We might say more particularly a mechanism to quicken the um, five senses of a human person, the, the eyes, the ears, the, the taste, the touch, all these types of things where we are alerted to a moment of God's revelation and caused to advert our gaze there and consider it with our mind. That's how the spiritual sense is meant to be used in the, in the tradition. Similar to how we might speak of the sacraments today, uh, the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, it's engaging the senses, uh, the five senses of the human person in order to uh, deal with that person as a human being, as an intellect who is embodied, so to say. And that's one of the primary uses of the spiritual sense. So the literal founds the spiritual in the sense that we always re re revert to the literal sense for the purpose of truth. And also in the sense that the literal points us to the realities which are significant or have been enclosed as meaningful in God's sacred economy of revelation. The fathers recognize that God has revealed himself throughout history and throughout cultures and throughout all times in a very large myriad of ways, also outside the covenantal people of God. But not all of that concrete acts of revelation is to be universal for all times, all persons, all places, etc. Not all of that revelation was to be employed or remembered, we might say. And even within the sacred history of Israel, not all of the great deeds and doings of God 
were to be used as instruments of God's revelation. Perhaps they were at one time, but they fall away and God no longer intends for us to recall these things for reasons of his wisdom. And even within certain events that we are to recall, there's only particular elements or aspects in those events which are, quote-unquote, relevant or meaningful, which God intends, again, in his wisdom for us to reflect upon. Those would be the ones that are actually enclosed in the sacred text. So the spiritual sense is far wider than the sacred text because it is all of those arrows that God has invested by his providence history with, terminating on Christ, launching people on Christ, but only a small portion of those revelatory realities are themselves pointed out to us by way of Holy Scripture as still vehicles, still instruments of of God's revelation. And uh, so that would be a couple ways how they would relate to each other that uh, would be important to remember, at least as in production. Yeah, as as I think about how you've explained this, like it doesn't seem that the Reformed readers who I read after that have this same understanding of what's going on here. So, like, what, where, how does this get lost in translation? It's a very good question. Um, through a series of historical accidents, um, not least of which have to do with certain individuals in the early modern period who were rather bad theologians on both sides of the border, uh, bo- both sides of the Tiber, uh, who were representing their respective sides and concerns rather poorly and had a large debates, caused a lot of rupture, and these things were picking up in their respective traditions because they weren't reading, reading each other. Um, one of the main couples here who are kind of the culprits would be William Whitaker uh, on the Protestant reform side. Very important, of course, for the Westminster Assembly. The Westminster Assembly is basically taking what Whitaker believes is the Roman Catholic position, which is most certainly not the Roman Catholic position on matters of Holy Scripture. Um, they're taking it as their, as their rule and guide as they respond uh, and parse out the Protestant position uh, in reference to how the Roman Catholic position has been represented to them. And then uh, Whitaker's uh, counterpart, Thomas Stapleton, who was an uh, ex-Jesuit theologian, also a very bad theologian, also very unably representing the uh, Roman Catholic position on the matters of Holy Scripture, more broadly, but also on the sense of Holy Scripture. Uh, both of them had a very lengthy exchange we talk about this perhaps at some other time. I talk about this a lot in my, my Sense of Holy Scripture course, actually. Um, but they have a very lengthy exchange that splits the tradition even further. And there's a few Roman Catholics who are actually reading the Reform. Most of them are down in Salamanca at Spain and actually understand what's going on. But they're certainly not the majority of Roman Catholics during that time. But almost universally, the Protestants are reading Stapleton and then Bellarmine who also did not do the best of jobs uh, in representing this particular particular issue. So if you trace the Reformed, Reformed Orthodox positions and thoughts on 
the sense of Holy Scripture question is pulling from Whitaker almost exclusively. Turretin is just quoting Whitaker entirely, like cribbing from him. Uh, Westminster Assembly is enshrining Whitaker's thoughts, uh, these types of things, but it's really just a, a very long historical misunderstanding. A historical mis- misunderstanding, however, that, that does have, uh, we might say, very justified or understandable grounds. Uh, I often think of these as twofold. Um, it seems to me that particularly the reformers were concerned about the equivocations of allegory or spiritual sense and often mixturing, uh, mixing up allegorization for doing allegory. And then the other, so that was just like pure, pure misunderstanding. You know, Calvin is misunderstanding this. Luther is misunderstanding. They're pointing to Origen, who's the great boogeyman of the tradition, uh, the whipping boy for lots of reasons, most of which don't have to do with Origen. Um, but they're critiquing the spiritual sense or the allegorical sense, but they're not speaking of what is actually the allegorical sense. That is the signification in realities. Uh, they're thinking that it's the signification in words, which is just being, again, run amok by, by uh, guys like Origen and other Greek fathers. But then, on the other hand, the second reason that is very understandable is, is actual and genuine, genuine abuses of the spiritual sense. And by the way, I don't just mean like, quote unquote, going overboard in spiritualizing and like hyper obsessing about the 50 million reasons that the Red Sea crossing might have, like you do find that in the tradition. Uh, There's no question. But I mean, particularly the abuse in the early modern period of the allegorical or spiritual sense to um, cause need for the magisterium as a middleman interpreting the Holy Scripture particularly as it uh, is a guide for developing doctrines or for producing doctrines. Now, you heard me just say a moment ago, fundamental golden rule when you get to the sense of Holy Scripture that the entire patristic and medieval tradition agrees on, again, quoting from Holy Dionysius, is that never, ever, ever do we argue doctrine from spiritual sense. And the Roman Catholics, the good Roman Catholics during this time, are dogged in repeating that truth never derived doctrine from spiritual sense. However, there are exceptions, and there were plenty of Roman Catholics, mostly Jesuits, who were using the lack of clarity intrinsic to the spiritual sense as an argument in favor of the magisterium, doctrinally speaking, not just in a suggestive way like, Oh, if people are struggling with reading the text, then it might be helpful for them to have an interpreter. Here's an argument that's probable for the magisterium. No, an actually demonstrative that's, that's going beyond just merely suggestive or fitting this argument, something like that. Uh, this is especially what's called the partim-partim uh, view of Revelation. It's a much stronger view on magisterium uh, and its roles in the Roman Catholic tradition at that time, which a minority of Roman Catholic theologians hold, but nonetheless often influential. So Reformed are concerned about this genuine abuse, not merely abuse of excess, but people being hoodwinked into 
doctrines that Protestants consider untenable because the spiritual sense is allowed to be. And so we say there is not two senses in Holy Scripture which uh, the magisterium plays middleman for between the literal and the spiritual being the gatekeepers. No, there's only one spiritual sense, the literal. I'm quoting Westminster here. you know, this is one reason why we don't say there's two senses. No, no, no real medievals would ever say it. It's, it's one twofold sense. Again, equivocation. But uh, those would be some of the some of the reasons for concern among Protestants, uh, particularly early on. I think among evangelicals today, there there's often a different kind of concern. Some of it has to do with just operating on entirely different metrics like apples and oranges kind of situation where you know for the patristic for the medieval tradition when we speak of sense we don't mean meaning again what does meaning mean well who knows but as the normal person comes to sacred text today and they read they often think in terms of meaning whatever words they're going to use to describe that the fathers view Holy Scripture and approach Holy Scripture in radically different ways. They're concerned about the truths, the way how predicates are verified of subjects, and and such things like that. So it's a radically different way of viewing, not merely the words, but also the realities and what we're actually trying to do with them. Where evangelicals come today and they see what the fathers are doing and they feel concerned because they're thinking of it in different terms. And then similarly, another concern would be just the constant threat of allegorization. Uh, And then also, perhaps more keenly today, people's concern with the historicity of Holy Scripture, which seems to be undercut by uh, allegorization and uh, those types of concerns. So the historicity debates is, is often very fraught. And, uh, culprit here. So, is there in any sense, should there be a difference between how Protestants approach the senses of Scripture versus how a Roman Catholic approaches it? Because I can imagine a lot of people being like, whoa, 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 there's, there's clearly there's a, these diff- there should be these big differences. But the way you've explained it, I don't really know if there should be a difference in how we approach the senses at least of scripture. Now the conclusions that we're drawing from it would naturally differ, but is there really a fundamental difference in how we're just approaching those senses? This is a very difficult question. I think we need to be very honest, of course, obviously, but very, very open and realistic and say, at least first of all, there is a very radical difference of reading that's practiced an extremely radical difference of reading. Also historically, uh, the early moderns, the reformed, they're humanists, they're not scholastics. They read scripture utterly differently. And, and what Holy Scripture is for them is utterly different than what it is for medievals and Thomas. Like where it's two different things. This, by the way, has a lot to do with a lot of the classical theism debates that everybody gets up in arms about today. You know, we have the so-called attributes of God, the names of God, the relationship to, of Holy Scripture to the production of those names. If we want to talk about that, people see how 
the fathers of medievals derive more technical names, perhaps, of God from the sacred text. And they scratch their head because it looks like they're literally just crazy, crazy guys. They're ignoring context, they're doing this, they're running roughshod over the letter, they're like a million concerns. These are concerns of Illicis, right? Well, these are also concerns of the reformers, which is why from the beginning of the Protestant tradition, there is tension with the use of Holy Scripture in the production of Orthodox doctrine. Because what the Holy Scripture is and also how it's to be read are radically different from medievals, Thomas, fathers, etc. So not only today is there a difference, but also we should be real and say historically there is a very radical difference as well, which is oftentimes the culprit of a lot of unnecessary speaking past each other, where there genuinely is difference in the sense that perhaps Protestants and Roman Catholics are saying different things, but it's not a contrary opinion situation. Uh, It's not a contradiction we're talking about. It's not unresolvable differences is how we would say that in common common term today. Um, The question, though, is should there be a difference, which is a very different question. Uh, And I think, again, we have to be really honest and open and say probably most Protestants today would, would, well, I don't know, Jordan. I'll say what I think. I think that most Protestants today would say that there should be a difference or at least a large number. And I also think historically there would be like early modern time, there would also be similar kinds of sentiments that there should be a difference. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that. I don't mean to put you on the spot. I don't feel that there should be in any regards or there needs to be in the sense that nothing nothing troublesome or worrisome happens at the end of the day. Does it change how you read Holy Scripture? Yeah, quite radically. Um, But it's not touching on actual questions of doctrinal disagreement at all. And it is, from a perspective such as my own, the only way to read. I'm an Aristotelian, so I get to say that. (laughs) One, One thing that Aristotelians get to do that you know, at least people are uncomfortable about doing this because universal or, or uh, Aristotelians claim to be universalist in their knowledge. Uh, you know, we're just making a conclusion, guys, that uh, this is the only way. So I get to say that as an Aristotelian or Thomas. Of course, you can disagree with me. Uh, you would be wrong. Uh, but no. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so that that's what I would certainly view. I, I don't know if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean that's a curious question for me to answer. I mean, I would I would think at the baseline, if you ask most people, is there a difference? They would say absolutely. Yeah. But if I pressed them and said, what is that what difference? Is yeah, it's it a lot of seem, Yeah. Most people would talk about conclusions that mm-hmm. are arising from the text, and I think though I think one thing that would probably be brought out quite a bit is just like how you understand the role of tradition in understanding the text of scripture. I, I think that's true, but I don't think the Protestant Roman Catholic position on that on that point is irreconcilable at all. Yeah. The one thing that I do find, so I've talked to a lot of my Protestant brethren about this issue for quite some time. The one thing that I do notice tends to raise eyebrows 
is a very strong two vehicles of revelation hmm. idea. Um, so it's very incipient in Protestantism where we talk about typology. So nobody seems to have any trouble to, to, to accept the fact that the lamb was meaningful at Pascha. Yeah. And this is just a extension or a globalization of that. The one sticking point that I do notice a lot of Protestants have is the question, even, even a sticking point in their understanding. They just cannot get their head around this for some reason. I don't, I don't really know why. Uh, but the idea that those realities are significant outside and be, before they've been enclosed as the signified things by the letter of Holy Scripture. So that's very troublesome for a lot of Protestant thinkers on this issue. Realities, particularly the sacred history of Israel, just stick with that because it's easier and clearer and, and you know, everyone agrees about it. Reality was meaningful and revelatory before it was talked about by Moses on the mountain. It's this oral speech before it was written about by Moses and the prophets and you know, through this process of compiling what we now come to know Holy Scripture. And that signification, this, by the way, is how we resolve the issue of equivocation, which Protestants are very concerned about, which is why they like Thomas Aquinas. Because, oh, the spiritual sense is found in the letter, you know, escaping equivocation. Thomas is a sounder exegete because he's never running roughshod over the letter. Well, the way to actually avoid equivocation is to recognize there are two independent significations going on here, guys, that are not getting their wires crossed. And even though Thomas also says that there could be multiple literal senses in the letter and people don't like to know that, but nonetheless, <laughs> at the least, say there's one signification, you can go from there and get to the reality which itself has one signification and there's no issues of truth on clarity which would cause the need for the magisterium to step in. Because that's what was happening. Again, that genuine abuse that Protestants were uh, rejecting and a large number of Roman Catholics as well were rejecting. Um, but nonetheless, uh, a, point of, a point of concern, Protestant concern. So in, in your mind, who would be some exemplary interpreters of Scripture that we should look to and say, these are models that we should pattern ourselves off of and follow, even if we don't follow their conclusions, there's just the way they're approaching and understanding the text and how they're, they're, they're cleaning the insights is someone we should follow. Yeah. Um, this is probably where I get myself in trouble. Uh, <laughs> my answer to the, so, you know, I'm not, I don't say this to everybody, obviously, but I think that probably origin was, uh, among the best interpreters, who ever lived, and then Thomas. Uh, I think both of them, both Origen or Thomas, uh, and Thomas, excuse me, however, are exceedingly, exceedingly hard to read without genuinely able experts on each figure. Mm -hmm. People just cannot pick up Origen and read him profitably, period. Similarly for Thomas, uh, even part of that is to do with the fact that Thomas's commentaries, or at least a lot of them, are merely secretarial notes. Mm -hmm. Or the lecture notes that he scribbled down 
before he then lectured live. You have to have such a high degree of expertise in Thomas to decipher his scribbles. Like it is hardly profitable for you to read Thomas commentaries without a guide like explain to you, this is how this works, the function of authorities, how we derive the letter, all the types of concerns, very, very hard. But I do think as far as it goes, origin, um, I mean, origin, it's just it's shockingly, shockingly good on, on interpreting Holy Scripture and, uh, and then Thomas. Yeah. Hmm. Very cool. So I guess one last thing I want to ask relates to local church pastors today. In what sense can using this framework benefit their ministries, whether that's just a preaching ministry or more contextualized, you know, teaching and shepherding the people and their flock? Yeah, well, you know, it depends on your context. If you're in a Protestant context, if you're a Roman Catholic context, there's going to be very different answers about what's helpful for you. Um, If you're in a Protestant context, you know, the tools internal to Protestant tradition for doing literal spiritual sense are the literal sense and then typology. Um, Now, typology is not the spiritual sense. These are not the same. Uh, Typology is is the spiritual sense which was run through the wood chipper and then pasted back together. Uh, And I mean that quite literally. But it's certainly workable. And the basic notion that, hey, reality is meaningful, reality is revelatory. Not all reality, don't be weird. Talking about the realities in Holy Scripture that Holy Scripture tells us are meaningful. That's the other thing. When we say never do we derive doctrine from spiritual sense, we also don't derive the fact of spiritual sense except from the letter. You have to have the letter somehow telling you, FYI, this reality is meaningful. In order for you to think about that reality is meaningful. Um, You have to have the word of Christ in John 3, where he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. To confirm to you that the reality of Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness was a significatory event, an act of revelation instrumentally employed by God to speak and communicate to his people. And itself has been enclosed in the sacred text and is to be also an instrument of revelation for all persons in all times by virtue of its inclusion in the sacred text. Yeah? But you need the letter to tell you that. But as far as what pastors can, can do, I think just running along the lines, don't use the quadriga, it's just weird. Also because the two genuses issue, which I mentioned above, it just will confuse you, confuse your people. Allegory is said in like 15 different ways. Everyone means their own thing by it. Just think of letters signifying things and things signifying things and start to allow those to be the main metrics around which you wrap your interpretation. Um, The other thing that would be really important, I think, is to get your head, we haven't really spoken a lot about it, and I suppose we're probably about out of time here, but 
would be to get your, your head around the two species of the literal sense, which are the proper and the improper. By the way, fun fact, the improper literal sense is also called the allegorical sense. Very annoying, very annoying, yeah? So we've got the spiritual sense, qua genus, is called the allegorical sense. We've got the subspecies of the spiritual sense, namely the allegorical, which is also called allegorical. And we've got the improper literal sense, also called the allegorical. And these are just a few. There's others. <laughs> so it's wild out there. Um, but the idea of letters which are signifying by way of predicates that are differentially verified of their subjects. Classic example, which Thomas Aquinas uses, taken from the Apostles' Creed, would be the distinction in the sense between Jesus ascends into heaven and Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Both of these are literal sense because we're speaking of how letters signify but one is proper literal sense and the other is improper. It's proper literal sense because when it's written that Jesus ascends, that predicate ascending can be truly and formally without any negation verified of Christ. We would say just commonly, he actually really ascended bodily, right? But Jesus sits at the right hand of God. It's not proper. Why is that? Well, God doesn't have a right hand. There's a metaphor here, and you have to recognize that. There's no grammatical signal telling you that there's a metaphor here. This is why grammarians and biblicists today really struggle to read sacred text, because there's oftentimes no grammatical sign that tells you FYI, we're now in doing improper literal sense. Again, you can hear why this is so important for the classical theism debates, um, which perhaps we can talk about at another time. But those would be the main, the main areas. Use the two distinct genuses, spiritual and literal, and then watch out for different species of literal. Because uh, not everything that's said to be in Holy Scripture is in the same mode. Very helpful. So, Ryan, thanks for talking about I mean, we could talk probably for another two hours about all the things related to it. But what I'll tell you guys to do, if you're not familiar and you didn't know, he mentioned earlier on that he teaches at Davenant Institute. So he teaches regularly there. And you don't have to be like a full-time degree-seeking student to take courses there. You can audit courses at will um, and get involved in what they're doing there. Um, I think of Davenant as one of the theological institutions on the forefront of the future of education but they're not doing it in the way of like let's just disregard all learning outcomes and go to this model where you just take an exam and you watch a couple of lectures it's you're getting live lectures uh, you're digging into classical texts engaging the primary sources trying to recover wisdom uh, for your own context so I, I think their model is just awesome I love what they're doing and you have the chance to learn from all sorts of excellent people like Ryan included. So take a look at that. I'll link to the their stuff here uh, as well in the show notes. So if you're looking in the description, you can just click it and it'll take you right there and you can check it out. Uh, it's really affordable. I, I love their whole model too. I mean, they're not trying to make money. They're trying to equip people 
for their own ministry context and their own goals and their own formation. So I, I really can't speak highly enough of Davenant as well as Ryan's work. So thanks for joining us. This has been great. Everybody who's been tuning in, as you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.